Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All set for your flight? Yep, I've got everything I need. Eye mask, neck pillow, T-Mobile, headphones. Wait, T-Mobile? You bet. Free in-flight Wi-Fi. 15% off all Hilton brands. I never go anywhere without T-Mobile. Same goes from a water bottle, chewing gum, nail clippers, okay, passport. Okay, I'm gonna leave you to it. Find out how you can experience travel better at tmobile.com slash travel. Qualifying plan required. Wi-Fi were available on select U.S. airlines. Deposit and Hilton Honors membership required for 15% discount. Terms and conditions apply. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Patience is great and all, but sometimes you need to go after what you want especially when it comes to hiring for your business. Thankfully, ZipRecruiter makes that easy to do. They put the hustle in hiring with smart technology that finds top talent fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter find a quality candidate within the first day. Try it free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Spotify. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Over the next few weeks, we'll be releasing some of our favourite talks from We Have Ways Fest 3, our festival from the start of September. This chat at Warfest 3 was a lot of fun, and it was called Afflicted, Why We Are Obsessed with the Second World War, in which James and I chatted with Dermot O'Leary and James May about why the Second World War has them in its grip. Please welcome James Holland, Dermot O'Leary, and James May, ladies and gentlemen. Come on. Well, James, you've already bought some models, haven't you? No. <laughs> yes. Yes, I have. I've bought, I've, uh, bought a uh, Tamiya 148 scale Heinkel Salamander, which I can talk about, but I wouldn't advise it. <laughs> oh, go on then. I mean, if, if there's one place in the world... <laughs> You're safe space, James. Well, uh, OK, let's keep it brief. Um, <laughs> it's a people's fighter developed very late in the Second World War to exploit new jet engine technology, which some people would argue was a German invention. They certainly made it fly first. And despite being a jet aircraft, it was largely made of wood because they'd run out of aluminium, which was our fault because we won. And that's why we're here. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that was a very good summary, wasn't it? I, think I can't fault it. Pretty slick. I went, yes, but back to your question about the affliction. Um, I hope I can say this because, as you've already said, we are in a room full of similarly afflicted people, so we're amongst friends. And I don't have experience of the other situation in which this happens, but I know how it goes, so I'll start and say, my name is James May and I'm obsessed with World War II. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I would say I have largely, I mean, the model airfix stuff was, was, as a kid, my dad would come home mm. and I'd save up and we'd buy a Messerschmitt and a Lancaster and then we'd put it together in a way so that you, James... So you're planes, not tanks? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. We'd put it together in a way that James would find, James would find abhorrent, largely just glue all over it, kind of like, you know, the crosses where they shouldn't be, you know, the, 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 the livery where it shouldn't be. But on be. the Lancaster. Broadly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And then, uh, and then it was comic books. So I got really sort of heavily into Commando and Warlord uh, until my dad picked up Warlord and went, no, I'm not letting you read this, <laughs> quite rightly. And then, and then for me, it was, I guess, sort of getting, I mean, I grew up in Colchester. So I grew up on sort of the North sort of Essex kind of, yeah, it's a very classic Colchester response. It takes a couple of seconds and <laughs> we're not entirely sure of ourselves. But, and, um, <laughs> and sort of South Suffolk. So I grew up with all those lovely sort of airfields up that way, you know, and there was still, still so many air, American air bases up there as well. So quite often, there was, a, a, there was a lot of families nearby that I knew that collected kind of military aircraft, uh, sorry, um, uh, vehicles. And then there was a lot of, uh, of air displays. So I used to go up to Duxford all the time as a kid. So I just got the bugs so early. But so, so for both of you, was it, is it the, um, it's, it's the machinery, is it, more than anything else that sort of got you sucked in? I mean, what, what, I, what is it? Well, I think, um, I mean, when you were talking just then, it sounded like we'd grown up in the same house, but I'd never noticed you when I was a boy. But, <laughs> but it was, it, yes. It, it would I, have been some time before me, I imagine, Jen. That's probably why. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> sort of like, you'd have left and gone to university, come back. Been in work a few years, and then I'd have been like an accident. That Wait, came what's along. it like? <laughs> I think it's really. I think it's really nice we've let a kid on the stage. To be honest, yeah. agreed. <laughs> but I was going to say, um, yeah, I think for me it, it is. This is the aeroplane side, by the way. This is this is, isn't it? I think that's fair. We're aeroplanes, they're tanks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, no, I, I would we're definitely. If it's modelling, I would definitely have naturally gone to planes. It's just that. When all this started, there was a, I saw, you know, everyone was doing tanks and, and I kind of thought, well, I've got to have a go at it. Yeah. Well, we, so I did make that panther. Kind of, you but, did make but, that panther. But, but, but you very sensibly did a knocked out panther, so it didn't matter how. <laughs> <laughs> knocked out by the Sherwood Rangers? Yes, of course. But who else? <laughs> um, anyway, can I go on with that? Of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. Go, go on. Having been born such a long time ago, I'll just have to pause for a minute and think what it was I was going to say. That about, <laughs> oh, yeah. So for me, it started, you have to remember when I was born, um, the end of World War II was only 18 years ago. God, and when was that? Two years before you, I right, think. Yes, or three I think years so, ago. yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was, I remember the, the first time I saw an Airfix model. Obviously, they were still in the bags then. And yes, before somebody shouts it out, they were two shillings. And I said to my dad, I said, what's that? You know, because it was just some plastic bits in a polythene bag. And he said, oh, that's a, that's a kit. You, you, you put it together and you paint it and you get a... And I said, can I have it? And he, you know, we saved up for another couple of months for two shillings. And then we got the Airfix <laughs> model and we made it together, exactly as you're describing. I think that's where it started. But I wonder if, you know, if we hadn't had World War II and World War I... Would we still have an event like this for, for the British people, which would be about something that has become mythologized, but that which we like to believe we won, um, in which we were victorious, and that is to some extent a comfort? Would we have this, would this be the festival of, I don't know, Robin Hood or King Arthur or 
Top Gear. I don't know. So <laughs> no, I just remembered we did do a festival of Top Gear and it was shit, actually. So we were gonna... <laughs> but it, but it, it, I mean... <laughs> well, I can say that now. I, didn't know. <laughs> I hope none of you ever came to it. <laughs> See me afterwards for the refund. Of, uh, but it, it's... Um, so there was the tech. There were also the stories and... Um, you know, we, there were the Commando and the Air Race Picture Library comic books, and they were fantastic. And that's how I, you know, learned aeroplane recognition to begin with. That's where it started. And I had, if I can just tell about a terrible experience, you know, a lot of people said, oh, those, those old comic books, they were terrible because they were, you know, they had a lot of national stereotypes in them and they were, they were very racist about, you know, the Japanese especially and the Germans to a large extent because they were written by British authors. A lot of them were illustrated by Italians, actually. They were, but, from Milan. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I was asked many, many years later, so this was in about 2010, a publisher bought the rights for all those, those comics and they were going to do a compilation of the best bits and they said, we saw a thing on the television where you admitted that you read these as a kid. Would you write the foreword to it? And I said, yeah, yeah, of course, of course, I'd love to. So I, got, you know, I thought, this is brilliant. I said, so, you know, these things seem inappropriate in this day and age, but you have to remember that you know, a lot of them were published in the 1950s and the war was still very recent and it was a useful hook for all the old tropes of stories such as the triumph of good over evil and, and the way that truth will always out in the end and the way that you can find the good soldier and the bad soldier. And I wrote all this bollocks was streaming out of my computer. I thought, yes, that's, that's, that's what it's about. That's why they were important. Then a couple of months later, the book came out and they sent me a copy and I thought, wow, and it says on the front, forward by James May, I named it. I've written the foreword to a book of racism. <laughs> so you, 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 We've all done it. Yeah, we have. <laughs> but you have to... Um, I think you have to understand them in context. Yeah, of we, we, we were innocent. You know, we were 10-year-olds reading those things. Yeah, but it was, all, it was all Sergeant Bob Hardcastle had been in the desert for two years when rookie Charlie yeah, Dusty yeah, yeah. Miller turned up and all this kind of stuff. And cute and the, little story obviously is pretty innocent to me. Yes, and the rather pompous sort of no, rather upper class And so Germans officer. are going Gotten Himmel every time they die. Not racist. I.E. I.E. They did a lot of I.E. Aye, yeah. That's when they're dying, Jim. Aye. No, no, no. I know. I'm just okay. thinking whether the Germans did say aye or whether no, the Japanese. more Italians than Japanese. Japanese. No, Germans did a bit of aye-ing. Yeah. No, I thought the Germans said, "Ach, we are hit." Did that too? Yeah, yes. That happened a lot. The first German words I knew were Achtung and Himmel. I mean, it's, and I've got German. And I've got it's German strange, friends. Like, there were, like in Warlord, there were there were always quite a few stories where the German was the central protagonist as well. Yeah. And there's a couple like you do weirdly learn history. Like, there's a couple of those, I remember there's a couple of Ethiopian uh, 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 stories in Warlord, and I remember then going as a kid, going, "Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that from the Second World War." And then you sort of and then, then they have a little nugget of information on the back yeah. page, wouldn't they? Yeah. Likewise, on the airfix instructions, you got oh, the airfix history. Yeah, those yeah. airfix instructions, but basically how I learned about you know what what an aeroplane is, how aeroplanes were produced, what they were produced for, and there's some of it I'm sure that is the, basically the sort of the junk DNA in my brain is the, the stuff from Airfix Instructions. And the Tamiya ones too as well, which are always incredibly in, in, instructional. You know, like the, if you want a, a brief canter through German tank development, you could do a lot worse than buy... What's <laughs> <laughs> the Tamiya kits? Just the Tamiya kits, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's One good to 35. Stu just it's good stuff. Um, my father was a paratrooper 
at the weekends. I mean, could there be anything more in, absolutely incredible when you're five? Uh, uh, one of my earliest and keenest memories is going, to, uh, and I can't remember where it would have been, to see Dad do his balloon jumps um, with, his, with his squadron or, or, or whoever, or with his, I think he was in the Brigade HQ by then, but whatever. And we would go and the balloon, he'd get in the basket and the basket would go out and he'd jump out and then he'd run over. And, and I remember him, uh, I tried That's to pick cool, up, I remember trying to pick the reserve, his reserve up. Um, and of course it's got a red handle on it, but you, <laughs> and he'd go, don't, 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 don't. <laughs> Not the red handle, because you know that's got a 50-foot spring compressed down like that to fire the right. the reserve out, um, uh, and you know I'd have gone pinging across <laughs> Salisbury Plain, and I, I remember that really, really keenly, and that sort of stuff, and and, and again, an airfix is the gateway drug to the, the, the hard stuff, the Class A Second World War stuff. Uh, maybe it's the glue as well with the airfix. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But, but, but you, can't, you can't beat seeing something that's real. Uh, and I remember at a very early age being invited up to Lark Hill to see the Lark Hill Open Day, where basically they just lined up every bit of gun and self-propelled gun they possibly have and then would just fire it. And it was and these huge explosions on the horizon. I mean, yeah, it's well, like the 70s. Fire, live firing yeah. for you to watch. It was, yeah. it was absolutely amazing, and I completely forgot about it. I just remembered it the other day. And, and it, it, you know, actually, I think that was quite a big moment because after that, I was, really, I was really, you know, when I was a kid, I was really into it. Then I got bored of it in the teenage years. And then it was seeing the Spitfire when I was playing cricket. I mean, this is... And that's what... That's this what is really you being bitten me. by the radioactive spider, basically, isn't it? Yeah. This is your Spider-Man origin story. Yeah, it is really. They've yeah. all heard it. Tell it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell it then. I was at the crease. <laughs> I was batting. I was on 99 one out. 99 one out. It's a glorious afternoon. And I was, I was just lined up a beautiful cover drive through cover. And, <laughs> uh, and, and I was about to go to three figures when suddenly this incredible sound from over mid-wicket. And I looked up and there was this, this thing of rare beauty and, and just the shape of it. And it just seduced me instantly. And it was, of course, a spitfire. You said to the umpire, what's that? I said, what is that? And the umpire said, that's a spit for you, twat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, magnificent. Well, Did you get to 100? <laughs> no, I was, I was, that was a lie. That was just... Right. Is I'm, that story embellished over time? Ever so slightly. <laughs> just a little bit. He was in the pavilion. He was out. <laughs> yeah, there was an umpire in sight. Didn't even see it, just heard it go just over. Heard it, heard it. What's that? He was on the toilet at a cricket match. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, this is the thing, though, because I, I, I mean, it's interesting you said you lost interest when you were. Uh, I did go through a period of trying to be interested in other things. It didn't work. And, and really trying to park it, and for God's sake, read about something else. And, and I went, went through, I think, probably a decade of that, of really trying to go. The, the world is giant and interesting and full of amazing things and all other extraordinary dramatic stories. And, you know, uh, maybe, maybe, maybe khaki isn't so cool and all that. And, it, and it, 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 I failed. But it's exhaustive. That's the great thing about yeah, it. Yeah. And obviously it's a world war. But the fact that there's... The f I mean, I was, whenever, you, whenever you see, like, a trove of 
swords from the Iron Age. I, get, I feel so happy for those archaeologists who have found it because they've found something new to discover that's so difficult to discover. Well, the great thing about the Second World War and the interest in it is it constantly evolves. So you're, you're always finding out new stuff. And yeah. the facts and figures that you thought were relevant uh, and accurate 20, 30 years ago not, aren't necessarily anymore. And that's what I love about it. Like, you know, I was born 30 years after it and I hit 30. Band of Brothers came out and I watched it. And that was, that was you know, I was well into it even by then. But that was the moment I went, Jesus, hang on a second, I'm 30 years old. And I, was, you know, I was born in 73. This was 30 years before this. It was properly going on in 43. So, and, so, so when did you see your first bit fire? Oh, good question. For, for me, it was more... Uh, no, that would have been later. I came to those later because because the stuff I would have seen in the American Air Base was was with the Mustangs, basically. That would, you know you'd see them from time to time. Um, so Spitfire came later, but that's where you know my, my you know I really caught the bug as I got older when I was able to meet the old pilots, and mm. the old pilots were just so incredibly interesting. You know now they've they've kind of pretty much all passed, haven't they? But uh, but I got to spend time with Jeffrey Wellham, who I'm sure you all know, and Jeff wrote this incredible book first light that James you were so sort of helpful with and responsible for and the great thing about Jeffrey was you meet Jeffrey at 92 was the same as Jeffrey as 22 basically it was a real sense of arrested development so you, you would get Jeff and he'd go it was like the second world war version of Tony Blackburn who I loved dearly and I worked with right so <laughs> but Jeff was like the second world war Tony Blackburn you would get Jeff and he'd go oh my dear boy let me tell you about it the clink of the bowels or in beers with the boys and it was so marvelous wasn't it but he was very young at heart Whereas I got to spend the whole summer with Tom Neal, and Tom was a completely different uh, figure, where Tom was <laughs> quite a, a sober student of war, and Tom would go back and kind of, you know, I remember him telling me, I, you know, I, I'd sort of kind of romanticise a story or a question, and Tom would go, oh, no, my dear boy, that's completely wrong. And he, he was, there was a real sobriety about Tom, wasn't there, about how he looked at... Uh, yeah, I just remember talking to him about the Battle of Britain and saying, you know, he was in 249 Squadron, they flew hurricanes, and... And I said to him, you know, did you, did you ever have a shortage of hurricanes? He went, never. He said, every morning you'd wake up and there would be a whole new load of hurricanes. Where they came from, nobody knew. <laughs> 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 it was absolutely fantastic. And, and I've got to say, it was childhood uh, um, obsession, Lark Hill, models, commando comics, interregnum, went off it, came back to it, cricket match, spitfire, then got totally, totally afflicted, had to sort of know everything about it, and, um, uh, and then met Jeff Wellham and yeah. Alan Wright and, and talked to them, and, and that, was, that was just like, oh my God. So, so you start off with the machine, and then you go onto the, onto, onto the people, and these, you know, to, to be sat in a pub in Cornwall with, with Jeff Wellham holding a pint and, a, and an ashtray, because that's how long ago it was, and going, so here's me and my spit, and there's this Emmy, and you know, and you just think, ah, oh, that's what I want from a Battle of Britain mm, pilot. Mm. That's what I want from a veteran, you know. And to think that he was there and he did it, it was just at that time, it just seemed so completely incredible. I then rushed around hoovering up interviews with everybody, and it, so, so it went from machine to the human experience. I, I still think the human experience is what really drives uh, us. Yeah. But I mean, it's interesting. But within that framework of it. Dermot, a moment ago, you said that, that, that it's always offering something new. We, we spoke, um, and I don't know if it's gone out yet, but Kevin Heimel's on the li uh, live cast the other, the other night. So Kevin Heimel is a, he's a, uh, 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 writing a, a multiple volume biography of George Patton. And he has discovered, and this is to the point, he's discovered for the second volume of his trilogy, so it doesn't inform the first volume, that Patton falsified his diaries. 
Patton's wife falsified his diaries. So basically, his handwriting was essentially legible. So after the war, she got hold of his diaries, typed them up, and then said no one was allowed to look at the originals. And two of his staff officers... Until 2015. Until 2015, exactly. Two of his staff officers also put new stuff in. So they'd be like, well, they, they put in their beefs with people that have since been relayed as Patton's thoughts and feelings, even to the point... And the, 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 the really brilliant one is... She, there's been this ongoing thing from a diary entry that Patton predicted the Ardennes offensive and that he, he had some mystic vision. And the, the other point Kevin makes is a lot of stuff that's been said about Patton is he's such a genius at reading the battlefield and actually what he's doing is reading Ultra. He's reading the encrypts. He's not, a, he's not got some mystic Meg sense of the battle. He's just reading the German stuff, you know. But for the Battle of the Bulge, she changed the date on a diary entry. So um, it's him on the 27th of December going, well, you know, they've left, they've left themselves in a real pickle if the Germans try here. And she moved it to earlier in the month to make it look like he'd predicted how, how can wrong... Can you believe it? Can you believe it? And, no. and, and that's been set <laughs> in the history since basically since Patton died and, and Patton very neatly made sure he was dead by the end of 1945 um, uh, there's still that even on that like uh, you know like on the most famous general most famous general of the American on the American side in the second world war on the, the granular level of who he was and what he was like is still revealing itself and that I mean why wouldn't you I mean this is the why wouldn't you be interested? It's what Robert Harris said to this. Why aren't you interested in the Second World War? Because there's still that too, you know. Yeah. But, but James, when you were doing, when you did, did Toy Stories and you did that brilliant Spitfire one with the, with the giant Spitfire model. Oh, yes. What was so wonderful about that entire series, actually, was, was, it, was about, it was about machines and, and toys, but it was also about, about people, wasn't it? Yes. I mean, the, the, the giant Spitfire thing was, to be honest, something I, I started thinking about when I was quite small. Not, I mean, not, <laughs> not when I got that first Airfix 172nd Mark IX Spitfire kit that I built with my dad, but probably five or six years later. I remember I would talk to my mates about it, and we used to do things like, now this is tragic, and I don't want this to go outside of this tent, okay? But <laughs> There's been a lot of that this weekend. Yeah, I'm sure there has. Let's be honest, but, um, there's no one else interested. <laughs> They're all here. They're all here. <laughs> I wish I hadn't built it up because it's not that good. But <laughs> me and my mate Cookie started talking about this because he was a very keen Airfix model maker as well. And we said, you know, how big is a real Spitfire? And because we were nerds and we understood scale, we took the, the finished Spitfire that he'd made and we measured it very carefully. And then we went out into his parents' garden and we laid it out in stones so we could see... The, the shape and the we spent bloody hours, days actually on this, and I think from that we started talking about the idea of you know could you actually make these parts full size? And there are problems with that because obviously things scale in volume and in mass and dimensionally they're not all the same thing, so it becomes complicated. You make it's, it's the mouse the size of the elephant problem. Yeah. You can't scale a mouse up because its legs would shatter. Yeah. And likewise, if you make those bits full size, you can't just do it in injected moulded polystyrene because there you'd have to make a piece of tooling as big as the Spitfire which would cost a billion pounds. <laughs> um, the parts would be all floppy and they'd be too heavy so we had to come up with this combination of fibreglass and a supporting frame and even then it was too heavy and the undercarriage almost collapsed as we pulled it out of the hangar. But the idea I think was probably easily 30 years in the making. 30 years, and that's what I have to show for it. <laughs> giant plastic Spitfire with a, with a model of me sitting next to it with no eyeballs. <laughs> but, 
But what we haven't mentioned yet, what we haven't mentioned yet is, is movies. And we've all, I mean, you wrote a book about it, but, but you know, watching war movies on Saturday afternoon in, in early November, I mean, we've all it doesn't done that, get any better, does it? What else is there to do? <laughs> well, in the 1970s, nothing. I mean, what was well, your that's silenced us, isn't it? <laughs> well, no, you're <laughs> trip down memory lane. Um, I mean, can you remember the first war movie you saw, Dermot? For, well, weirdly, the first war movie I probably saw with my auntie was Sound of Music, was, 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 and that was, which sounds silly, but in actual fact, it was the first time I probably saw uniforms. Mm. It was the first Came time... Came face to face with the horror of the Nazi regime. You know, right, it was the first... Th- well, it was kind of insidious, right? I mean, yeah. it's kind of like, you know, it's like you laugh, but there was, there's a, you know, the dark yeah. undertone of that's really interesting. When I'm 16, going, going on 17, I'm going to have to join the Wehrmacht. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so every weekend was up with my auntie in northwest London, big Irish family, and we'd, and we'd you know, Sound of Music was the, was, she loved the Sound of Music. This is awful because I've always refused to watch the Sound of Music because I thought it's not a war film, therefore I won't bother, oh, but it no. turns out that it Definitely. is. Great <laughs> right undertones, yeah. Really? First time I ever went to um, went to Berkis Garden, I, I, I landed at, um, at the Salisbury. first time I ever the went first, to Berkis Garden. First time Garden. I ever went to Berkis Garden. I go there regularly just to go and <laughs> to go and hang out at Hitler's house. Um, but the first time I was there, I got a taxi from um, from Salzburg to Berkis Garden, which is only about 20 minutes or something. And the taxi driver said, um, he said, "Yeah, you know, I just saw the Sound of Music for the first time ever the other day." And I said, oh, that's, that's amazing. What did you think of it after all these years? And he said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, where they were heading off in the end, they were going straight back into the Reich. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. <laughs> oh, brilliant. And then actual war film, war film, it was the, it was the two, basically. It was, it was The Great Escape, obviously. And then it was Where Eagles Dare, which I was just, and I loved. It's got a helicopter in it, though. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I was on the side of stage, you were in a helicopter. I was like, they were lied to me in that film. I'm afraid they did about many things. <laughs> I'm wondering what else, since you've made that revelation about Patton, what else about World War II actually isn't true? Was there a Battle of Britain? <laughs> Is that true? Well, when did it start, James, the Battle of Britain? Well, that's debatable. Did it, it start 400 pages into your book about it? <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's about giving asking, context. Asking for a friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I mean, it's a bridge too far, isn't it? Let's be honest now. And, uh, yeah, um, I mean, I've, I have written about this, but it's my, it's my memory of going to see that that is also, the, like, a big driver of my interest in the, in the Second World War because my father took me. We didn't go to the cinema together, or I don't remember going to the cinema with him apart from on this occasion. And he went because he knew people who'd been in the Battle of Arnhem because, he'd, because, because of his bit of soldiering. And some of his NCOs, one of his NCOs was at the bridge in the schoolhouse with Eric Mackay fighting there, right? And so he'd obviously gone to make sure that the film was telling the truth, right? Rather than enjoy himself. Um, <laughs> although maybe that's the same thing. <laughs> they're, not, they're not necessarily either or. And I remember that, you know, and you're probably all familiar, that the, 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 they didn't have tiger tanks in that film, obviously. And anyway, there weren't tiger tanks on the day that that piece of action is depicted in the movie, but that's another story. That they were um, Panzer III's, but... You're nothing like your dad, obviously. No, no, well... <laughs> 
the a- apple hasn't fallen that far. <laughs> but basically, they so they used a leopard, a 60s uh, uh, German tank, and 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 it's a it's the tremendously dramatic scene where they bring up the pit and everything, and they yeah. they can't stop the tank. And he did turn to me in the cinema and say, "It's a wrong bloody tank." <laughs> And I, I, you know, I'd have been eight or nine or whatever. Oh, it's like, just destroyed it. For it's, you. What's that got to do with me? <laughs> <laughs> Everything as it turned out. Um, but, but, <laughs> but, but, I mean, for me, that yeah. film, what, what was brilliant was this, because Dad had known these pits, some of these people, there's this absolute direct connection with, with, with reality and this completely, bon- you know, the event is presented as bonkers in the movie and, it, and there's no doubt that it was. And I think, the other really, the other really wonderful film in that th- thing in that film is that all of the parachuting scenes in it, all of the, all of that stuff is real. They really are all. They do this. They did do this enormous drop with one of the, with one of the parachute battalions. You know, from, from, from Dakotas, and and they built gliders. They built horse gliders, models of them that did lift off when they taxied with them. And then they obviously, but the Battle of Britain was similar, wasn't it? The movie yeah. The Battle of Britain. They, you know, they, they yeah, but Bouchons. Yeah, but my point was that there was like you know the, there were yeah 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 there was that there, many were, there were lots and lots and lots of them yeah the great thing about British Too Far as well is just a series of beautiful vignettes so you can easily when it's on and you just happen to like turn yeah, off yeah you can go off and make a cup of tea and come Elliot back and Elliot Gould you know putting together that bridge going oh fuck it I'll have to have a watch yeah. this but what about the Germans as well yeah yeah all that yeah I thought I we were talking about first war film I'm pretty sure in fact I know that the first one I saw was Battle of Britain. Because that came out in 1969, yeah. didn't it? And I was six years old. And I remember very distinctly being out playing in the street with my mates on bicycles and my dad coming out and saying, right, we're going to the cinema. I didn't really know what that was. And he said, we're going to see Battle of Britain. And I knew that this film was coming out because there'd been a huge amount of hype about it and everybody had been talking about it. So we went off to the cinema, me, my dad. I don't think my little brother came, but um, maybe my mum was there as well. And I found it, if I, I, was, I was a bit squeamish as a, as a kid, a bit timid, and I found it terrifying because they turned the volume up really loud in the cinema and it was packed and it smelled, obviously, because it was the 60s and everybody had a fag on and nobody had any deodorant and so on. But it was very, very noisy. And there's, that, there's a bit in, in the aerial sequences where, the, where that German bloke's tomato face ketchup. explodes. Yeah, the tomato yeah. ketchup, which is utterly unconvincing when you watch it now. But when I saw it then, I was so horrified that from that point on, every time they showed the interior of a hindcourt, actually a Casa 111, I, I hid behind this, the seat. So I missed quite a lot of it. And then, of course, it was a long time till I could see it again because um, the first time you could watch it at will was when it was on VHS, which I think was in the 80s, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah. And, and very occasionally it would be on on Sunday afternoon, on, on, usually on BBC Two, I think one of those filler things. You'd always yeah. get Battle of Britain or 623 Squadron, especially if the cricket was rained off. So I remember <laughs> never being interested in cricket and in the summer thinking, I hope it bloody well rains because <laughs> we might get Battle of Britain or 623 Squadron. But one of the things that, I mean, talking about, you know, having the wrong tank in a film, one of the things that annoyed me is I learned quite quickly because I'd started making airfix models that yes the BF-109s in Battle of Britain are are wrong because there weren't any so they're Hispano-Bouchons they've got the wrong engines the nose is wrong all these other things but what annoyed me the other day is I I can't remember what I was watching but it had a CGI sequence in it that showed some airplanes not even flying they were parked and they showed a German airfield and in CGI they'd put Bouchons on the airfield because that, that film has been... I'm, I'm sorry, I know it's not that important in the... In the 
But that film, Battle of Britain, has been so influential that people think that's what a 109 looks like, and it doesn't! <laughs> because it's got an inverted V12 with fuel injection, not a Merlin. Get a bloody grip. Right now... Thank you. I mean, listen to this. If, if we could hand out burning torches, we could now yeah, march but... on... <laughs> there he is! <laughs> We'll return with more of this talk after the break. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. One of the interesting things with being interested in this, however, is, is that there are a lot of jokes about middle-aged men being... There's that, there's that meme going around Twitter at the moment, when a man enters middle age, he has to decide whether he's going to be interested in the Second World War or smoking meats. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and and the, obviously, there, is, there, there are some people who... who who are interested in the mythology of it, or believe the mythology of it, rather than interested in the history of it. And, and, and you know, uh, James will tell you, around 450 pages into the book about the Battle of Britain, that, um, that you know, that, that our idea of the few and all that is sort of kind of the wrong, it's all kind of the wrong way round, and our perception of the, uh, um, you know, the, the Luftwaffe's ability to um, overwhelm Britain's air defence system in the form of the downing system. I mean, how long we got? Um, another 300 pages before you get the answer, but um, <laughs> it's a brilliant book, by the way. But 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 you know, it is the sort of thing you're meant to be embarrassed about being interested in this subject, isn't it? To an extent, it's not. It's not. It's it's non-new, isn't it? It's um because the other week Jim and I were discussing on the podcast the bombing of Hamburg and um, and about how. All the, all the memos that build up to Bomber Command bombing Hamburg are basically, how many Germans can, can we kill if we possibly can, right? So we were talking about that, and the, 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 that's actually what they're saying. They are saying that internally. They are euphemizing, but they're also saying that internally. And someone popped up on my timeline called something like, you know, Saxon warrior, or, you know, <laughs> or, you know heart of Kent, or something like that. I, thought, I think nearly, Kent, Kent is nearly right. And, um, and, 
<laughs> and he went, how dare you run down our country? And you think, uh, well, I, I what, what would he mean? Were like, yeah, 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 we, 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 we nice Ch to Churchill the Germans? was the first war criminal. For, yeah, oh, no, that's the other guy. That, oh, he's, no, 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 that's right, another it? guy. He's a Nazi. He's a Nazi. Oh, is he? Yeah. yeah we, 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 first we, war crime on the 11th of May. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, what, yeah, yeah, yeah I know, but, but it's, not, it's not him I'm worried about because he's oh. crazy anyway. It's the... It, it, it's the, it, this guy who said, you're running the country down. But, and all we're trying to do is find out what really happened. Absolutely. And be honest about, yeah. about a yeah. thing like the strategic bombing campaign. So, there's, so there's, there's, there's those people who want it to be like a land of hope and glory event, who I think are, are why maybe some of us hide our um, light under a bushel a little, if you sort of But it's also, it's, it's because it's the greatest event in terms of human drama in this country's history, bar none. Yeah, I'm not arguing with that. No, I know, but, but that's why we're all so interested in it, because it affected everyone. You know, there's, there's probably 30 million people in the country today who have a direct family link hmm. to people who served in the Second World War. So of course Yeah, only 2,000 are interested. <laughs> we're doing every, everything we can to reach the other 29 million. <laughs> no, I mean, James, you were going to say something then. I was, but it was more than a minute ago, so it's probably fled. No, no, we were going to say there is a difference. I know what you mean about the Union Jack underpants, you know, two world wars and one World Cup things. Yeah, your face goes a bit red in the sun and then you're in hospital type person. <laughs> um, but there's a, there's a big difference between the people who use World War II as, as a convenient form of jingoism, which, it, which is now, you know, would have been necessary at the time, I'm sure, but it's irrelevant now. And those people, I'm absolutely sure this tent is 100% is full of the other type of person who is effectively a, a, a historian monkey, if you like. You know, it, that's what I mean. For me, it's the technology because, yes, of course, the way Britain turned out, actually the way the whole world turned out, but, it, but intensely so in Europe, does have a huge amount to do with what happened in World War II. But if you look at other technologies, I mean, you know, like cars, obviously, which is something I've been into, but, you know, aviation, but the spin-off from all these things and the way some of those technologies progressed as a result of warfare in other wars as well. I mean, you're thinking about, you know, um, rifles, explosives, the early aeroplanes in World War I and so on. The rate at which those things advance once they are turned to sort of rather nasty, destructive ends is phenomenal. Compare the Gloucester Gladiator, which was going into service just before World War II started, with the Messerschmitt 262. That happened in five years. Well, or even the Meteor, the same the company. Meteor, yeah. You know, uh, 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 yes, and medicine, uh, sim simple things like that, medical advances in the Second World War, uh, leaps and bounds. Uh, Yes, I mean the world we live in is is, is still in, in, entirely shaped by it. Is the, is, is the truth well, exactly? And for me, like you touched upon the thirty million, you you know, I I sort of sit here in awe of you talking about the technology because for me, you know, I've I've got the good fortune to tell other people's stories as my job, right? I interview people, and I, and the, along the along the way, you get to interview. It's the only festival I've ever been to where a gun goes off and no one gives a shit, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you guys should be down like that now. I know, no one right. even flinches now. <laughs> no. We've all got PTSD, you know that, don't you? Um, I love people and I love people's stories. And for me, why I became so fascinated after I got over the kind of boy's own um, uh, period, which, you know, no one should ever feel embarrassed about, uh, it's about ordinary people doing extraordinary things and for five years this happened you, you know and you 
I'm ne you're never exhausted by the tales and the books I read and the articles or even when I listen to your podcast of ordinary people put in the most extraordinary circumstance. And see, so I love the macro and the micro. I love the, the, the decisions made in smoky rooms or in, you know, in aircraft carriers and then the effect that had. But then, I mean, I just read this great, I thought I was telling you guys about it, this book, last great war book I probably read was this book by a guy called Tim Brady that I picked up in an airport in the States called 12 Desperate Miles. And it's largely the story of, of a, a kind of paunchy French Moroccan river pilot who ends up getting squirreled out of occupied, which would then be Morocco, French Morocco, I guess, I don't know, uh, squirreled into the UK, sent over to the States to then pilot a flat bottom boat of which they couldn't really find. So they had to requisition this boat that goes from Miami to Cuba on a banana run, get it across the Atlantic, which in itself was an incredible bit of seamanship because it didn't really have a keel. And then he'd piloted 12 miles up this river that he left. He saw his own house and where his children, his wife were, two years pretty much to the day for uh, special forces to be able to, and then he grounded this boat within 200 yards of an airfield that these paratroopers or, the, or these this commandos went and took. Uh, it's extraordinary, you know? And I picked that up literally in a heartbeat in, in an uh, airport in New York or Los Angeles and now I know, you know, that those stories that, that that largely just would have gone untold, you know? I mean, you know, it's a kind of a book at the back of a bookshelf. And, and though, there are hundreds of thousands of stories like that. And, this, and, and like I said, it's because it's in living memory, we're still finding out about it. That's what I find so fascinating. But what, what was, it's interesting, you, that was going to come up at some point in this conversation, the idea of living memory. Now, when, Stukas. <laughs> uh, when I was a university student, so that was back in the, in the first half of the 80s, amongst my friends, there were still people who had First World War veteran grandfathers. Quite a few of those still about. Um, and there, there were millions of people about who, whose fathers had fought in the Second World War. You know, you'd meet them, you'd just meet people all the time who said, oh yeah, I was with the whatever, whatever. And they're almost all gone. Now, when, when a thing like a, a world war, something very traumatic, once it passes out of living memory, are we more free to reassess it, be more honest about it, not have to, um, humour is the wrong word, but not have to respect the feelings of people who may have given everything for something that they might now feel was futile or misdirected, you know, if they yeah. were in, a, in certain, you know, failed raids and so on. Does that change our perspective on it? And does it mean another generation will be equally fascinated in it for a different reason? Or will they just... My nephews, for example, I've got quite a few nephews. The, the, the eldest is nearly 40. The youngest is eight. That's quite a big span. But they're all a lot younger than me for the reasons that you pointed out earlier on. Thank you. <laughs> Not one of them has any idea that the Rolls-Royce Vulture was a troublesome aero engine. Now, does... <laughs> Does that actually matter? I don't know. Does it? Oh, yeah. It does, doesn't it? Yes. Does it matter? Yes. Thank you. I mean, the, the, the lost potential Phew. of the West, Westland whirlwind. Oh. Oh. Well, fortunately, we're, we're getting to grips with that tomorrow, aren't we? Um, should, we should we take some questions? Yeah. Should we, should we do that? We should, yeah, we why not? Um, yes. uh, John is going to run around with the microphone. Where should we start?
token American here. Um, I really appreciated your kind of maturity curve of the afflicted. Starts with the kit, moves on to the human experience. Where has that cur where is that curve now for you? Well, well, I mean, I mean, is it is it the way that we like think about like the way we live today is the result of the Second World War? Like, there are repercussions beyond just the human experience. Yeah. Personally, the, the curve, the human experience, and the and the and the kid, the kid's interest. If you told me now I could drive the Sherman at the top there, or the Cromwell, then I'd be nine again, going, yeah, absolutely. Let me let me out the controls. The, 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 I mean, it's interesting. You called it the boy's own thing, and the, the, there's nothing wrong with being an excited little boy, being thrilled by stuff, because the world is full of exciting stuff. So yeah, I mean. That never, that never goes out. I think that light has not gone out in any. I think I can speak for all of us, and this in any of us. Um, you know, we, you've, we, I, have you, you flown. You must have flown in a Spitfire, James. Uh, yeah, not by myself. No, not by yourself. No, no. Jeremy, you've been up in one. Spitfire, several, and then about two months ago, I, got, I went up in a hurricane. Oh, you bastard! Well, no. <laughs> So there you go, that answers your question. Well, I, well, I, Guilty as charged, I'll take that. No, no, I've got, I have an open invitation to go up in the, you, you, the Hurricane Heritage. Hurricane, yes, I've got an invitation. Yes, it's with White Wolfham. Yes, indeed, and as we know, it was the most important aircraft in the Battle of Britain. And we're not having a debate about that, that is simply a fact. <laughs> Quite happy to have that debate, though. The, the other thing about the curve, since you mentioned, it's... For me, it's quite a complicated curve because it, it, it went along the bottom of the axis as a boy. I, I knew nothing. And then the airfix Spitfire, you know, my life was unutterably changed from that moment. And, and then a curve of interest. And there is the a friend of mine once referred to it as the beer ladies and motorbikes part of your life where the, where the curve does that. And it, and it probably bumbled along there for a bit. But I found that recently it's taken a bit of a climb because working at my desk on completely unrelated things. I started making an Airfix Spitfire again, and then I made the Airfix Ambulance, which we've, we've talked about <laughs> at great length, unfortunately. Um, so I think my curve, the, the shape of my curve is actually like that. And, I'm, and my interest in it now is not so much the, the, the sort of the, the mythologized heroism of the um, commando war stories and so on. It's, it's now the tech and the tech It's Piper J7. The hurricane okay, did fly over yesterday. It's one of ours. James. What? Did it? Oh, where yeah. was I? Oh, yes. Um, so the curve is going up again now, but for me, the curve is about the development of technology and the very, very, very far-reaching effects of it on, on everything from material science to aerodynamics and, and aero engines. But, Dummy, you've had your, um, you know, you've had, had your, your experiences of reading commandos and war picture library and all the rest of it and then progressing to real life spitfires and and yeah. marrying into a, a family of a great war heritage in norway yeah that's interesting and so now you've written a book about it yeah my um so my wife uh my wife is norwegian and her father is now 90 raw is now 91 92 and remembers oslo being occupied and uh he drew the the straw shore when he was about 11 or so to uh, there was a, there was an internment camp and um, and they they had their lunch and they, they were going to give the chuck their lunch over to uh, the prisoners and he he draws a short short to go and basically abuse the German to like chasing him away so this guy ends up shooting at him <laughs> as his mates then 
uh, chuck their lunch over. And, there, and there's a, I don't know if, you, if anyone here has been to Oslo, but there's an incredible resistance museum, uh, the Defence Museum in Oslo. It's brilliant. And at the very front, the, the, the kind of the, basically the victory day, uh, there's a sort of a, you know, this big kind of poster, I suppose, and then the, the entrance and the exit are over it. So you can see this whole panorama of um, King Johan's Gate as, you, you know, as, the, as, the, as the king comes up. And there's these two Americans there that were talking about it. They said, gee, it looks fantastic. And it's uh, what an incredible day it must have been. And then, and then my, fa- my father-in-law in his very kind of Norwegian matter-of-fact way went, yes, it was. And I was there. And you can see me just in that. And then they were like, <laughs> minds are absolutely blown. It's extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. um, but unrelated, yeah, no. So I'm, I'm signing after. I've, you know, I've, I've done five books about my cat. And I really enjoy writing uh, for kids. Uh, and, and now you've done Linus. And now I've done this book that James Wings of Glory. sort of helped me with. Yeah, so I've, I've now uh, set some fiction in the Second World War. Um, so unbeknownst to us, animals are fighting on our behalf. And I have a swift that signs up to um, fight in the Royal Bird Force, who comes over from uh, the Congo uh, to, to fight in Fighter Group 11. But, um, but they, him and his sister, but they won't have him uh, because they're, they're peregrine falcons and they're very much the blue bloods. And uh, so he ends up in the squadron with a magpie who steals everything and an owl who won't get out of bed before eight o'clock. But um, <laughs> James is very kindly and, you know, we've worked on a few things together down the years and I've said it around Battle of Britain Day. So I've tried to kind of keep historical context, but it's quite a difficult thing to do because you're writing children's fiction, but war is the backdrop and there are certain things you can't ignore with war. So I found that a really interesting... Uh, well, it's an absolutely charming book. It, re- it really is lovely. It just completely works on Thanks every level. Yeah, so. yeah. But, but to go back to where my arc is, it's, it's still trying to find stories. I mean, I did a show a couple of years ago, which wasn't perfect, but, we had a, but there were little flashes. And uh, I got to interview, and you guys really... Because I've like, only interviewed for like half an hour and we probably only used four minutes of it. But her name is Renee, and she is now in her 90s, and she is pretty much the only civilian to be evacuated, certainly alive, to be evacuated during Dunkirk. And the, we, were in tar- we, we were in touch with the Little Ships Society Association, and, they, and you know, we, we wanted to find out about a couple of stories with the Little Ships. And we're on the phone to them, the production team said, well, is there anyone else you think we should meet? And we said, well, they said, well, we've got this lady who's 90, who's, she's never really been interviewed before. And her story about getting out of Brussels and then being evacuated, largely because her mother was so charming, is unbelievable. And so it's just finding those little nuggets that are still out there, I find fascinating. It sounds like at least three of the, the people on stage were, were really inspired by the technology. And, and I've always been fascinated by the way the, uh, the technological race uh, in the Second World War. Uh, for me, um, the fact that V2... Uh, vengeance weapon technology became motorbike exhausts and the questions for James May which is your if you like most fascinating wartime technology that got repurposed oh that's a very good question um I think uh, probably this is not a very exciting answer I would agree but it's probably fuel injection that is pretty boring isn't it should we should I uh, <laughs> commit commit do no, it. I'll commit. Well, fuel injection, I mean, we, we, we do largely have the Germans to thank for this, although the British understood that it could be important, but it was, as usual, um, denied by, by the powers that be and so on, so we were stuck with carburettors. But it's, it's, it's no coincidence that, until quite recently, the leading fuel injection technologists in the world were the Germans. It's basically Bosch and company, and that started in the 1930s, oh, 19... 
well, early 1930s, when they were working on fuel injection systems for two-stroke diesel engines for aeroplanes and so on, um, which gave them a huge head start. We got a much better one because we ended up with better petrol. Um, but that technology served them very well. And ultimately, you know, when I ended up writing about cars, there was always this argument about, oh, you know, we've got to have unleaded fuel, we've got to have this and that and the other, and it's going to destroy cars and it's going to make them, it's going to make them terrible. It, it remains a fact that every supposed barrier that's been put in the way of the car, you, you know, um, catalytic converters, unleaded fuel, safety standards, and even now things like ULEs, passenger protection, pedestrian protection, and so on, they all ultimately actually improve the car. And one of the great improvements to the car was the need to reduce emissions and fit catalytic converters, which meant that you had to abandon the carburetor, especially in small cars, and everything went over to fuel injection. But we owe the fact that we were that far ahead with fuel injection technology to what Germany was doing in the 1930s, I think. Otherwise, we would probably, especially if there hadn't been a war to accelerate that process, we'd probably be at least 30 years behind with our cars. Yeah. So, wow. all that immense human suffering, but you, your Fiat Panda is slightly better than it would have been, was <laughs> fortunately. Do we not need to be um, grumpy old men about uh, the Second World War? Is it more important that the youth find out what happened, rather than, as I discovered, my 16-year-old boy looking at me as I ranted about the eject eject moment in World on Fire, oh, I wishing to steal your thunder. And he said he'd never seen me more angry. At least, they, <laughs> at least he was learning about the Second World War. So is it about the storytelling or the accuracy, do we think? Well, you can start with the storytelling and then sniff out the accuracy for yourself. But you're right, that was probably the most atrocious moment in British broadcasting history. <laughs> It was completely unwatchable. And I've been I've re responsible for some of the top nine terrible moments, but that was... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, did you, you know about this? World on Fire, they had a scene where these, these night fighters go up in hurricanes. These guys go up in hurricanes as night fighters, so... Uh, and they, they managed to find a Heinkel, and, and the, they engage it, and then one of them is shot down by the Heinkel. And as he's going down, the other hurricane pilot cries, Eject! Eject! Stephen eject. <laughs> no, but can you believe it? I mean, it is unbelievable. They've redubbed it because we tried to we tried to get the clip for Gurglebox tonight, and they they've redubbed it. Clearly, we are one of the most influential. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Imagine getting that wrong. I How haven't easy? Got that far, you I see, mean, you, you, you you you've got to go out of your way to get that wrong. You've got to be. I mean, that's criminally ignorant, isn't it? I mean, how could it? But I, I, see, I'm, I'm not sure they should have been allowed to redub it. It's like I think you shouldn't be allowed to delete or edit tweets. You've got to stand by what you said after your third bottle of Chablis because you, <laughs> you did say it and you effectively published it and you, you've, you know, you've got to own it. And I think if you make a film and say someone's got to eject from a hurricane, you should be held to account for all time for that. It's, that's important. That, I that is in itself part of the process by which we understand the history of World War II and of aviation is by people getting those things wrong, I think. Eject my ass. Sorry, it should be... <laughs> Good afternoon, my Here ass we go. is the correct phrase. Um, what is your, for all of you, what is your favourite theatre of operations during the Second World War? Thank you. Oh, sweet favourite theatre of operations. 
North, Northwest, Northwest Europe. 44 to 45. That's when the when 21st Army Group is. The, the, there's two Scottish divisions, I believe. Um, uh, the 52nd Lowland Division, uh, they're, they're quite good, Andy, yeah. But they're, they're not a patch on 6th Airborne Division, who are, the, who are the kings of swing, I think. Anyway, yeah, that's my answer. Jim? Well, it's probably the same. But, I, you know, a few years ago, it would have definitely been 1940. But I've kind of sort of, you know, and that's why I got... I put 1940 on absolutely everything, every kind of Twitter handle and everything, because I was really, really into it. But I sort of feel I've sort of moved on, and that's the that's the great thing about studying this great subject of ours that we can evolve and and and, and nurture it and and develop. So yeah, I'll go for the same. Right. But Battle Atlantic's good. No. Um. <laughs> There's a lot of this stuff I don't know anything about whatsoever. So I'm going to Snap. say... Snap! Thanks. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say my favourite is, is European air war. Mainly 1940 to 1943, but I'd also reserve a little bit for the air war over and around Japan because I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Mitsubishi A6M Zero and I love it. So, yeah. I... I I go through sort of periods, so I, it's, invariably for me, it's like whatever I'm reading about at that yeah, current yeah, time, I get a real deep dive into. So at the moment, probably Battle of Britain, if you asked me a year ago, I'd say the Battle of the Atlantic absolutely fascinates me. Yeah. Whee! <laughs> All right, Union Jack underpants, how's it going over there? <laughs> uh, no, I, I you know, agree with you. The Battle of the Atlantic for me is just is fascinating. And, what, and going back to macro, micro stuff that was going on in the war rooms at the time and then the decisions that were make, being made and how that impacted the convoys, I find absolutely fascinating. I think that's, I'm afraid, I think that's probably all we've got time for, isn't it? Um, but, but... You have a bigger um, R than that. <laughs> <laughs> are, you, um, are you chaps happy to sign books? Yeah. Yeah, great. Um, uh, ladies Depends and gentlemen, a huge... <laughs> so it depends who they're by. <laughs> 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 a huge thank you to Dermot and to James for joining us today. Hello, listeners. It's Anita Arnand here from the Goal Hanger sister podcast, Empire, which I host along with... Me, William Dalrymple. And we are here to tell you about our new series on the Founding Fathers, the men who made America. We wanted to look at the men who actually founded the country, who dreamt the dream, who wrote the words upon which a country would be born. What were they like? What made them do what they did? What did they actually believe in? And how did they come to play the role that they did in the American Revolution and the creation of America? What really interested me about this was the contradictions. I mean, we expect these men to be great figures. We've seen the portraits in the galleries. We, we know the faces from the banknotes, but they're deeply complex figures. But in that, and in that blend of contradiction and intellectual power and writing genius and curiosity and raw ability lies the nuance and complexity that allows us to understand them. And the United States is in many ways a reflection of them, their beliefs, their experiences. These are the men who wrote the Constitution. These are the men who created the federal system in every way. They are totally 
fundamental to what American politics looks like today. It all goes back to this extraordinary group of men. Yeah, and they have rip-roaring yarns as well, let me tell you. So if you want to know why America is the way it is and who the men were who made it, you can listen by searching Empire wherever you get your podcasts.